0: Good to see you all here this morning. You're visiting with us. We want to welcome you. We'd invite you to take out one of those cards that you see in front of you and fill that out. You can give that to me at, at the uh, conclusion of the lesson, if that's convenient for you, or there are two little black boxes there that you can place those in. That's just so we can get to know you and you can get to know us and We can express our appreciation for you being here with us this morning. My family and I, we got to go to the fair last night, the Wilson County Fair. Looking forward to that the next couple weeks. uh, Hope all gets to experience that. We got to see our clogging group here at church. I don't know how y'all do that. (laughs) That is absolutely amazing. Uh, It takes a lot of talent and a lot of skill. If I tried to do that, people would come just to watch me fail. Uh, but, uh, so glad that people uh, like, like you guys have the skill to do that and entertain us all. Uh, take out your Bible with me, if you will, and turn to the book of Genesis uh, before we get started with our main lesson text this morning. I want to look at uh, the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the creation account. God creates the world in six days, and then He rests On the seventh day, he ceases from his work. He Shabbats on the seventh day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. In creation. Now, as we look at the creation account, we see that there's something unique about the seventh day in comparison to the previous six days that had gone before. If you read in the text, if you read in Genesis chapter one, you'll see that the te- the, the way that the text reads, it says um, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning. The third day and so on and so forth until you get to the sixth day. There's this uh, continuation. There's this movement that we see throughout the creation accounts. All of the other days uh, were capped with the statement there was evening and there was morning. But there's something unique on the seventh day. We don't see that conclusion. There was evening and there was morning, the seventh day. The text doesn't say that. And we could talk a lot about this, but I'll just go ahead and tell you. The theological implication here is that in the Garden of Eden, the seventh day is like... It's intended to be a day without end. It's a continuous kind of rest. It's a day that signifies completeness, wholeness, and God's good world. It's a day that continuously marks God's good creation as a place where rest is a never-ending reality. And God invites the entirety of His creation, specifically that of human beings, to share in His divine rest that He initiates on the seventh day. Doesn't that sound amazing? God creates the world, God works for six days, and then ceases from His labor. He ceases And He rests, invites human beings to experience that kind of completeness and wholeness and refreshment uh, intending to extend into eternity. I wish the world was still like that. But it's not. The world is not as it was in the beginning. When human beings sinned, the continuous state of deep soul satisfying rest, it was replaced. It was subverted with a deep, soul-burdening weariness. And we see that all throughout the biblical story. Sin, it placed a load on the heart of humanity that caused them to to struggle and to toil hopelessly and to carry weights and burdens and loads that they couldn't possibly fulfill, that they couldn't possibly bear. Uh, Rest was replaced with burden when sin entered the world. Exhaustion and weariness and unrest when humanity decided to define right and wrong and good and evil based upon how they see fit. And this is the same unrest that we see within our world today and that we feel on a daily basis. Burdens, weariness, exhaustion, and unrest. However, what's so amazing about the Christian system, about Christianity, is that Jesus gives us offers to us the sweetest kind of invitation that anyone could ever extend. He invites us to come to Him and experience a calming rest that's intended to penetrate to the core of our soul. What Jesus Christ does, what His goal was in coming to the earth fully God and fully human and dying on the cross and being raised on the third day, was to restore this Eden-like rest in the depths of our hearts. And He claims that He Himself is the universal solution to all that burdens us. He gives us soul rest, soul rest rest. And we see that within the pages of Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25 and extending to verse 30. And that's where we're going to be this morning. That's going to be our main lesson text, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So take out your Bible and turn with with me there, if you will. Now, just a few, a uh, little bit of background information. Uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, when we get to Matthew chapter 11, there's this heavy sense of disappointment. Uh, Jesus isn't looking like. Uh, what people expected him to be. He just, uh, in, in the previous passage, he just denounced several cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Uh, because Jesus had been doing all of these mighty works and miraculous deeds in them, and they didn't repent. They choose to to follow their own way, because they had a preconceived idea of what the Messiah was intended to be like, and Jesus didn't fit that bill. So there's this heavy sense of disappointment in the air. This Messiah, Jesus, yeah, I mean, he can do a lot of cool stuff, but he's not what I envision him to be. And really, if you look in, uh, in the beginning of chapter 11, you see John the Baptist even uh, the, the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He even uh, has doubts about the Messiahship of Jesus and sends messengers to question uh, Jesus and ask him, Are you really the one? Are you the one? To, that's, that's to come. So in chapter 11, we're introduced to this problem. We see this problem growing here. There's, there's a disconnect uh, that, that we see. But the problem and the disconnect, it isn't with Jesus The problem and the disconnect is inside the human heart. I mean, you you can't see Jesus for who he really is, how grand and majestic he is. You will be blind to his beauty if you don't first come to him like a little child. And that's what he says in verse 25 and 26 of Matthew chapter 11. Look with me there, if you will. Verse 25 of Matthew 11 says, At that time, Jesus declared, he prays out loud, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The wise and the understanding. Those who the the truth is hidden to. Uh, Those who think that they have everything figured out. Those who think that they know what the Messiah is supposed to be like. I, I, I've read the law. I've read the Old Testament and I've seen the, the, the picture of the mighty warrior that is supposed to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and establish this Davidic-like kingdom that's never going to end and Israel is going to be like in the days of old. I mean, I've read the law. I've, I know that that is the Messiah's picture and mold of how He is going to operate. The wise and understanding, those who think that they know what the Messiah is supposed to be like, but they reject Jesus. And the truth, the beauty of God, the truth of God, the beauty of God, it's concealed from their eyes. They can't see it because they think they already have it figured out. Now, we have all kinds of wise and understanding people today. can't tell you how many times I've heard, I don't need all of this church stuff. I'm a good person. I, I have inherent goodness inside of me. God's going to smile upon me and look upon me with favor, favor because of the good things that I have done within my life. I relate to God based upon my own goodness. Why in the world do I need to come to church and do all these things? Uh, that church people do. Wise and understanding. Wise in their own eyes. The fact is that the truth of God and the beauty of God, it's only revealed to those who become like dependent children and love to be taught, love to sit at the feet of this Jesus and learn from Him. Truth is revealed to those who relinquish their self-sufficiency and become, as Jesus says previously in the Gospels, poor in spirit. And that beauty and that truth is revealed to them through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says in the next part in verse 27 of Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus Christ, he says, is the revealer of God. He reveals God. He knows the Father. The Father knows Him. He possesses the authority of the Father, and He's the only one that reveals an accurate picture of God of the Father to men. Jesus is claiming here that when you see me, when you look at me, when when you hear my words, when you see my attitudes and the way that I treat people, you're seeing a divine image of God. You are seeing the Father. You are hearing the Father's words when you hear me. You are, you are looking at a true image of the Father, of God, when you look at me. When you see my attitudes, how I relate to people and treat people, you are seeing the way God how God the Father relates to people and treats people. You are seeing the disposition of God. So many people today... Look for God in so many different paths other than Jesus Christ, but you can never really see God and know God except through Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father. He's saying, I reveal the Father, but I only reveal Him in all of His fullness and all of His glory to those who humble themselves like little children and who are not wise and understanding in their own eyes, but who want to be taught when we humble ourselves like children and have the attitude in our, in our heart, God, I need you. I'm desperate. I'm desperate without you. I'm completely helpless without you. Lord, please teach me these, these things. When th- we have that attitude and we see Jesus, we see this Jesus, then we receive this invitation that we see in verse 28. Look at me there, verse 28. The invitation that Jesus extends to those who are humble in heart, who come to God with desperation, who come to God with a spirit that is poor and contrite and meek and lowly and humble. The invitation is this, come, come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. You know, we receive all kinds of invitations. We receive birthday invitations, uh, wedding invitations, baby shower invitations, uh, but no invitation is like this that we see within Matthew the 11th chapter. Jesus' invitation here, it's a personal invitation. It's not a generic invitation just sent to a broad group of people. It's a personal kind of invitation. He invites those like little children to come directly to Him, directly to God in human flesh. Jesus, here, this invitation, He isn't inviting us to solely believe in historical facts about Him. That's not the invitation. He's not inviting us to exchange one set of rules for another. But He's inviting us to Himself. To God himself, he's inviting us to embrace him as a real personal Lord and Savior. Our brother, one of our brothers, Casey Mosier, in 1957 wrote a little book called The Gist of Romans. And he says this in the book. I think this is a very good quote. He says, one of the most difficult truths for man to accept is that he has a real Savior. He desires that Jesus tell him what to do to save himself. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if our view of salvation is a plan that's detached from the man, Jesus Christ, then in all truth, we have a warped view of God's salvation. Our understanding of the plan, of God's plan of salvation, should never be this, this list of conditions of what to do to save ourselves and to go to heaven. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not a list of conditions. The good news is God himself. God is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. We submit to the conditions in response to him. We come to him to receive Him, a personal relationship with Him. He says, come, come, come. To whom? To me. Come to me. To whom is this invitation extended? Come to me, as the passage says, all who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All who are weary. All who are burdened all who labor. Focus with me on that word labor, if you will. Uh, the participle here suggests those who have become weary through a heavy struggle and toil and a hardship and a difficulty. Uh, it, it's, it, it expresses the idea of someone that, that they're struggling with something and and they can't see any end in sight to their struggle and their toil and, and, and their labor. Uh, they're, they're hopeless because it seems like their labor... It seems like their work, what they do, is is, is just never enough. They're they're, they're looking for peace and relief in every conceivable compartment, every place imaginable, but they can't find it. They they, They can't find rest. Even after all of their work and their work and their work and their labor and their toil and their struggle, there's just no rest. Come to me, all those who labor. Have you ever worked on a project before? You worked on it all day. You, uh, uh, you put blood, sweat, and tears into it, and then you look back on it and you say, Have I really done anything? <laughs> doesn't look like I've done. It looks like I've done absolutely nothing uh, on, on this thing. That, that's the kind of labor that this is talking about. A labor that produces hopelessness. A labor that produces despair. despair. Come to me, all who labor in that way. Remember, Jesus says, "Also, come to me, all who are heavy laden. Come to me, all who are heavy laden." Focus with me on that uh, on, on on that word right there. Um, the The idea here it's probably connected to a beast of burden. Um, would use a donkey or an ox or um, or, or some kind of farm animal to Plow your field, or to uh, deliver goods, or, or something that you 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 put a load on an animal. Uh, it, it's referring to an animal that's overworked, that's over uh, that's that's burdened, um, that's overloaded. And more specifically, how this relates to human beings, it's referring to a task that's put on you that you cannot possibly do. One who uh, has heavy a heavy yoke upon them, heavy laden, something that they, that they have in their life that produces fear and anxiety and guilt, and they look at it and they say, I can work my hardest at this, I can do whatever, I, I, can, I can throw my all at this, but I'm just never going to complete it. It's just what I do is never going to be enough. That's what this is talking about. The same word is used in Luke chapter eleven, verse forty-six, to refer to what the the Pharisees, the lawyers, and the scribes would bind upon people. Notice with me in Luke chapter eleven and verse forty six, and Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load, same word, people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers in this day, they would interpret the the law of Moses, the law of God, in light of all of these extra-biblical traditions that they would tack onto the law, that that were not included within the law of Moses. And they would actually create laws themselves that God did not create. And they would bind them on those people and say, if you want to follow God... If you want to please God, then you have to do these things, even though they aren't in the Bible, even though they aren't within the Torah. You have to do them. And, 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 and there were things that would become uh, strenuous and extremely difficult. It, it, it would be uh, burdensome to obey God. There was no joy and peace and satisfaction in this. Um, and what was even worse, and what Jesus condemns these people for, is that they didn't even help the people try to obey these laws. They just said, here's a giant list of commandments that we've made up, and you've got to obey them. Here you go, do your best, <laughs> kind, kind of thing. Um, That's horrible, absolutely horrible. And, they, and they're, they're working themselves to death, and they were, they were still, all the while, toiling and laboring and struggling, not experiencing a clean conscience, but walking around with nothing but guilt. You know, I've talked to many Christian people who just walk around feeling a weight of guilt on their shoulders every day, every hour. I've talked to a lot of people who say things like, you know, it feels like no matter how much I discipline myself, how devoted I become to God, I just, I just never feel like He really approves of me. I've talked to so many people who say things like, there's there's always something more that I could have done when I look back on it. There's always some sin that lingers over me that I should have had the strength to endure through. I just have no joy in a relationship with God whatsoever because I feel that He looks at me as a complete and utter disappointment. No rest. Just toil and labor and struggle and burden." that you can't bear. Thank God that He doesn't fit that kind of a mold that we so often create of Him in our minds. God's not like that. Jesus claims that God is different from our natural perceptions of Him that we have sometimes. He doesn't burden us with instruction that we can't bear and then offer us like the scribes and lawyers um, and Pharisees, and then offers no help, no support in trying to obey those things. He gives you Himself, which brings about rest. He says, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers us rest from our burdens. What specifically? Rest from what? What's, what, what kind of rest do we experience in Jesus Christ? All weights and burdens that come from living in a sin-filled, fallen world. And these weights are so very many. The weight of scarcity. People say, there's just not going to be enough. It doesn't matter how hard I work or how much I struggle, there's always going to be a lack. We have the weight of acceptance. People say, I don't know if they'll accept me or approve of me. We have the weight of control. People say this person just won't do what I know is best for them to do, and it's killing me, and it's killing them. We carry the the weight of grief. People say I just feel hollow inside. Feel like there's nothing there. Feel bitterness. Feel anger. Every waking moment, all the time. We may carry the weight of guilt. People say, you know, what what I've done in the past, it just keeps replaying and replaying in my mind. It keeps coming back and keeps revisiting me and keeps haunting me and torturing me night and day. We carry the weight of trying to earn a relationship with God. I hope I've done enough. I hope that what I've done will earn favor in His sight so that I might somehow... Earn relationship with Him. And, but Christ gives us rest from the weights and the burdens that we experience while living within a sin-filled, fallen world. The truth is, what we learn from this passage is that when we approach Jesus Christ with the disposition of a child in full trust in Him, looking to Him in complete desperation, What He does is He reveals the heart of the Father to us. He gives us rest. He gives us rest from hopeless struggle. He gives us rest from burdens that we can't bear. But He gets even more specific in the passage with the kind of rest that He gives to us. Look in verse 29. He says, take my yoke, my yoke, take my yoke upon you. Accepting this invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Accepting this invitation, it's a yoke exchange. It's an exchange of masters. It's trading one kind of burden for another. It's exchanging the burdens that come from a fallen world for Jesus's burden, for Jesus's yoke. Now, wait a second. (laughs) That that doesn't sound very comforting. Well, why, why in the world would I just exchange one kind of weariness, one kind of burden for another? That doesn't seem to make any sense until you see the kind of Savior that Jesus Christ is. He's different, and the burden that He gives you is different because He is different. Look at the next part. And learn from me. Why? because for I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. You know, I've often wondered why, and I'm I'm not throwing stones here. I'm guilty of this too. I'm in the same boat. Um, I've often wondered why we don't open up to each other more. Um, I've often wondered why sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we're content with these surface level kind of relationships with one another. We don't Sometimes open up to each other, share our struggles, share our problems, confess our sins uh, to one another, as is uh, we see a pattern within Scripture, as the Bible says to do. And um, I'm not the wisest person in the world. I could be wrong, but I think it's because we don't trust each other. So often, I think we revert back to our fallen nature And instead of relating to each other with gentleness and humility and lowliness, we relate to each other with hostility and pride. I think sometimes we place yokes on each other that are impossible for one another to bear. And the result is nothing but the sins of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, division, enmity, strife, jealousy, all of those things. Uh, that we see that the flesh produces. Uh, But this Jesus, how He relates to us, when we come to Him and accept His invitation like a meek and lowly and poor in spirit child, His disposition is different from anything, from any kind of human disposition that we've seen within the world. He's truly gentle and lowly in His disposition toward those who approach Him in complete desperation. He's gentle. When I think about a gentle person, I think about a patient person. A gentle person is patient. A gentle person is understanding, is caring. A gentle person is trustworthy. The text also says that I am lowly. I am meek and lowly. A lowly person, and other translations render it this way, a lowly person is a humble person. And in this way, in this context, it means this kind of a person is willing to empty themselves, not for their benefit, but for yours. And that's, what Jesus, that's how Jesus describes Himself and how He reveals the Father, God Himself. The yoke that Jesus places on us, this yoke exchange when we accept His invitation is different because it comes from one who truly has our best interest at heart. One who isn't seeking to place on us more than we can bear. It's a yoke that brings soul rest. Rest. A yoke that comes from A gentle and a lowly heart. He says, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what Jesus gives to us. That's the invitation to come to Him, to know His soul rest that He gives to those who labor and struggle and toil and have burdens that they can't possibly bear and see no hope in sight. It's a salvation that penetrates to the depths of our souls and whispers, peace, be still in the midst of struggle and toil and strife, to our weary, burdened hearts. It's the kind of rest, soul rest, that releases us from fear and anxiety and guilt of unbearable burdens that we can't possibly carry. Now, this soul rest, of course, It doesn't mean that we'll never be without difficulties, we'll never be without hardships, we'll never be without unrest in this life, but what this soul rest that we experience and we know in Jesus, what it means is that we now have the resource at our fingertips to transfer the weights and burdens that we have to a higher power, a higher power that will gladly Take what we have on our backs from us. Why? Because He's gentle, and He's lowly, and He's humble in heart. This morning, if you know Jesus, if you're a Christian, and you're burdened with loads, with weights, with anxiety and fear and maybe even guilt you may very well be carrying a load that you were never intended to bear in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the invitation is not only extended to those outside of Jesus Christ, but those in Christ this morning who still might be carrying weights. The invitation is for you. Come, come to me, and I will give you rest. If you don't know Jesus today, His invitation is also extended to you. Uh, He's given us a list of of conditions. Uh, Believe in Him. Believe that He is who He says that He is and put your trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Confess publicly with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess your faith. Make your faith public and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's when you begin a relationship with Jesus Christ and you can know this rest, this soul rest that Jesus gives. And if you're still hesitant about coming, about trusting, Jesus gives you reassurance in the last part of our passage. He says, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light his yoke is not a burden what he, what his instructions what he commands you to do all that it takes while living in Jesus Christ it's not a burden it's a release living in Jesus Christ and living in obedience in faith to him it's a release from the bondage of laboring and toiling towards something that will never come about, which gives us the capability of fighting fear and anxiety and experiencing peace and joy in Him. God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. And today, He's inviting you, today, to enter into that seventh day, never-ending soul Rest because his heart is open, it's humble, it's gentle, it's lowly. Will you come today as we stand and as we sing?